Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring readings by Solmaz Sharif, Dana Smith, Ilya Kaminsky, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from Ada Limon, who joined us in October 2016 at McCaw Hall for a reading from her collection, Bright Dead Things, named a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award in Poetry and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Following a female speaker's experiences of love and loss, Bright Dead Things explores how we build our identities out of place and human contact. Quote, Ada Limon doesn't write as if she needs us. She writes as if she wants us. Her words reveal, coax, pull, see us, writes poet Nikki Finney. We read desire, ache, what human beings rarely have the heart or audacity to speak of alone, with the help of a poet with the most generous of eyes. Here, Limon's reading is followed by a conversation with Sal Associate Director Rebecca Hoogs, who also introduces the poet. For a while now, my son has been a bear. For example, he roars at people he meets and likes to eat salmon because bears eat salmon. This week, driving to school and having a lapse in his bearhood, I asked, he asked if we were also animals. And perhaps because I've been immersed in Ada Limon's poetry, I replied, yes, we're the kind of animal called humans. Humans, he repeated, trying out the word on his tongue. I don't believe in God, Limon said in the interview, but I do believe in animals. And animals indeed populate her work, dogs and horses and birds especially, but also the humankind with their big feelings and big despair and radical joy in spite of it all. Quote, we're all such bizarre animals, she has said, and I find the noises we make so exciting. Ada Limon is the author of four books of gorgeous noises, bountiful silences, of movement and stillness. Her most recent, Bright Dead Things, was named a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award in Poetry, a finalist for the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award, and was named one of the top 10 poetry books of the year by the New York Times. The work is truly gorgeous, both in its contemporary sense of beauty and also in its etymological sense, which refers to the throat. These poems are both the beauty adorning the throat, the warm, worn pearls, and the intimate lump in the throat, the not quite crying. They contain the vast awe of the abyss, the gorge. Library Journal praised the book, calling it, quote, generous of heart, intricate and accessible. The poems in this book are wondrous and deeply moving. Her work is Charles Wright-esque, a sort of southern pastoral when it stares off into the dark field behind the house, reveling in stillness and being grounded. It's Sharon Olds-esque on matters of sex, the self, and family. It's Naomi Shihab Nye-esque in its love of the world, in the way it praises, 
And of course, it's entirely Ada Limon-esque, and esque all her own, that offers us poems of, she has said, quote, a life that is actively thankful and holds within it a radical hope, despite the darkness all around. Poetry, she has said, quote, wants you to live your life and find happiness and breathe. What an amazing idea. That poetry wants so much good for us. What Ada Limon wants, perhaps, is suggested in these lines from her poem, How Far Away Are We? I want to give you something, or I want to take something from you. But I want to feel the exchange, the warm hand on the shoulder, the song coming out, and the ear holding on to it. Here you are, dear animals, dear ears, ready to hold on to Ada Limon's poetry. Poetry knows what's good for you, and what's good for you is Ada Limon. Poetry, and I invite you to please join us in welcoming Ada Limon to the stage. Thank you. That was such a beautiful introduction. I feel like I don't need to do anything anymore. There was a great song, there was a great poem, there was a great introduction, now we're done. Let's all get some oysters. Um, it's really nice to be back in Seattle. Uh, my father moved here when um, my little brother was born, when I was 15, and um, he has since moved away, but it has always felt like home. Uh, I went to the University of Washington for my undergraduate life. Um, and so it's just a pleasure to be here in this city and to see so many great friends and good people that I love and care about. Uh, it's just, it's awesome. I immediately got off the plane and was like, oh, I wanna, I wanna be here again. I love the Northwest. Um, so I think it's probably gonna be about 15 poems. Normally I would give you an exact number, but I think we're gonna go by time this evening, which is different for me. Um, but I think it probably will be 15. If you feel safe with a number, that would be the number I would hold in your head. <laughs> I tell you that in case you, you, know, you hate what you're hearing, you can kind of count down. <laughs> and if you like what you're hearing, you can be like, yeah, we still have more to go. So. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start at the beginning of this book. This is a, a book for uh, the, uh, the Phillies. This is the, uh, about the day before the Kentucky Derby is the Oaks Day when all the Phillies race. Um, and I also should say that just recently the, in the Prix de Arc de Triomphe in Paris, um, another lady horse won against the boys, against a field of 20. Her name was Found, it's a cool name. This is a poem for the ladies. How to triumph like a girl. I like the lady horses best. How they make it all look easy. Like running 40 miles per hour is as fun as taking a nap or grass. I like their lady horse swagger after winning. Ears up, girls, ears up. But mainly, let's be honest, I like that they're ladies. As if this big, dangerous animal is also a part of me. 
that somewhere inside the delicate skin of my body, there pumps an eight-pound female horse heart, giant with power, heavy with blood. Don't you want to believe it? Don't you want to lift my shirt and see the huge, beating, genius machine that thinks, no, it knows, it's going to come in first. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to um, read a complicated love poem. All love poems are complicated. Um, uh, it's about my move to Kentucky from New York um, in with my fiance and um, grieving the single self, which I think you have to do sometimes. Um, the last move. It was only months when it had felt like I had been doing the dishes forever. Hardwood planks under the feet accord to the sky. What is it to go to a we from an I? Each time he left for an errand, the walls would squeeze me in. I cried over the non-existent bath mat, wet floor of him, how south we were, far away in the outskirts, all the new bugs. <laughs> I put my apron on as a joke, and waltzed around carrying a zucchini like a child. This is Kentucky, not New York, and I am not important. This was before we got the dog even, and before I trusted the paralyzing tranquilizer of love stuck in the flesh of my neck. Back home in my apartment, another woman lived there, in Brooklyn, by the deli, where everything was clean and contained where I grieved my deaths. I took to my hands and knees. I was thinking about the novel I was writing, the great heavy chest of live animals I had been dragging around for years. What's life? I made the house so clean, shine, shine, and shine. I was suspicious of the monkey sounds of Kentucky's birds, judging crackles, rusty mailbox, spiders in the magnolia tree, tornado talk, dead June bugs like pinto beans. Somewhere I had heard that, after noting the lack of water pressure in an old hotel in Los Angeles, they found a woman's body at the bottom of a cistern. Imagine just thinking the water was low, just wanting to take a shower. After that, when the water would act weird, spurt, or gurgle, I'd imagine a body, a woman, a me, just years ago, freely single, happily unaccounted for, at the lowest curve of the water tower. Yes, and over and over, I'd press her limbs down with a long pole until she was still. Thank you. A complicated love. Lucas is always like, that's a love poem. <laughs> oh, I feel like every morning he questions his decision to, to be involved with a poet. My father and he were at dinner one time, and 
my dad said, yeah, it's so weird to have poems about you. And Lucas was like, yeah, like <laughs> he's like, I mean, the fact that I didn't buy a bath mat is like immortalized in this poem. <laughs> like yeah oh sorry guys um this poem is about the we used to live across from a 40 acre tree farm and um i always tell students that if you know you think poems have to have big subjects this is a poem about mowing the lawn mowing the man across the street is mowing 40 acres on a small lawnmower. It's so small, it must take him days. So I imagine that he likes it. He must. He goes around each tree carefully. He has 10,000 trees. It's a tree farm, so there are so many trees. One circle here, one circle there. My dog and I have been watching. The light's escaping the sky, and there's this place I like to stand. It's before the rise, so I'm invisible. I'm standing there, and I've got the dog, and the man is mowing in his circles, so many circles. There are no birds or anything or none that I can see. I imagine what it must be to stay hidden, disappear in the dusky nothing, and stay still in the night. It's not sadness, but it might sound like it. I'm thinking about people and trees and how I wish I could be silent more, be more tree than anything else, less clumsy and loud, less crow, more cool white pine, and how it's hard not to always want something else, not just to let the savage grass grow. I have a... A student in Pittsburgh came up and said she's getting the line, let the savage grass grow on her, a tattoo. <laughs> I don't have any tattoos, so I couldn't, I couldn't yay or nay it, but I did write it in my handwriting so she could get it in her hand. Um, there's a, a poem uh, that I, I feel, it's also a prose poem, um, that is to me sort of an ars poetica, um, a poem for poet's sake, or poem's sake. Um, and this to me is sort of my process. So I think this is a poem about my process of writing. The Quiet Machine. I'm learning so many different ways to be quiet. There's how I stand in the lawn, that's one way. There's also how I stand in the field across from my street. That's another way because I'm farther from people and therefore more likely to be alone. There's how I don't answer the phone and how I sometimes like to lie down on the floor of the kitchen and pretend I'm not home when people knock. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> There's daytime silent when I stare and nighttime silent when I do things. There's shower silent, and bath silent, and California silent, and Kentucky silent, and car silent, and then there's the silence that comes back a million times bigger than me, sneaks into my bones, and wails, and wails, and wails, until I can't be quiet anymore. That's how this machine works. Um, I have 
been sort of fascinated by the idea of writing love poems for your friends. Um, and I think it's important. And so this is a poem for my best friend, Trish. And her family is here tonight. <laughs> um, and uh, Trish is an interesting, uh, interesting person in that she doesn't like to be called Trish. She doesn't like me to say her name. So if I ever refer to her in, in writing, it has to be by just the letter T. So it's T throughout this. You'll know. Um, I'll also let you know that at the time, it begins with me in Kentucky and then goes back to backlashes to um, our time in Brooklyn. And uh, I'll, we've texted about 20 times today, so just so you know. Still going strong. Someplace like Montana. Now when I go to the grocery store, I'm amazed at the wide aisles of bright food and foodstuffs, and it's nothing like the bodega I shopped in for years in Brooklyn between the bars we liked. Once, when I was going for groceries, I ran into tea, and we decided we needed to drink rather than shop, and so we did. There were a lot of beers on tap, and the taps were all different like toys in a dentist's toy chest, so I said, I'll have what she's having. And maybe it was snowing out, and it seemed to be at a time when every shirt I bought at the second-hand store would turn out to be see-through. But I wouldn't know it until I was already out. <laughs> so a lot of conversations would start, is this shirt see-through? And it was. <laughs> we talked for a long time, grocery bags empty on the chair, and we both talked about moving to someplace like Montana and how sometimes it would be nice to see more sky than just this little square between the bridges and buildings. But then we'd miss Brooklyn and each other, so we ordered another beer. <laughs> T was writing a play and also some articles, and we both just needed some money and maybe to make out with someone who wasn't an asshole. <laughs> but also we wanted to make great art. T was really good at naming things, so we decided she should be a titologist. And she liked that. So she agreed. What would we do if we lived in some place like Montana? Well, we'd go for walks and look at trees and write and look at the sky. Yes, and we'd cook and we'd go to those huge grocery stores that have toy cars attached to the carts so kids can pretend like they're driving. Yes, and we'd probably have kids too. All of this seemed really far off and not like us at all, so we ordered another beer and said, life is long. Now I'm walking around the grocery store in Kentucky and I've just looked at trees and sky and I should write something. So I asked T to tell me what to write about. She says, saturation. And I think of that feeling when you're really full or life is full and you can't think of anything else that could fit in it. But then even more sky comes and more days and there's so much to remember and swallow I asked T what I should call the thing I write about saturation because she's a titologist. And she says, someplace like Montana. Um, I struggled with uh, moving to Kentucky. I had been in New York for 12 years and I kind of assumed I would move back to California or the West Coast. Um, 
and ended up falling in love with a guy in the horse racing industry. And so we were there. And um, I wrote this poem about that experience. And then it was published in The New Yorker. And I was I had this moment where I thought, oh no, <laughs> I'm really not going to make any friends in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> and uh, in fact, um, the great poet Morris Manning is here, a wonderful poet from Kentucky. And he, uh, he was doing an event, and I read it the very first time I read it was at the event in, in Kentucky. State Bird, Confession. I did not want to live here. Not among the goldenrod, wild onions, or the drop seed. Not waist high in the barrel aged brown corn water. Not with the million dollar racehorses, nor the tightly wound round hay bales. Not even in the old tobacco way station we live in, with its heavy metal safe doors that frame our bricked bedroom like the mouth of a strange beast yawning to suck us in each night like air. I denied it, this new land. But love, I'll concede this. Whatever state you are, I'll be that state's bird. The loud, obvious blur of song people point to when they wonder where it is you've gone. Um, because we live with so many horses around us, um, everyone is always like, is the horse a metaphor? I'm like, yes, but it's also a horse I can see literally out the window. Um, but there are a lot of accidents too, and so this is a poem about that. Downhearted. Six horses died in a tractor-trailer fire. There. That's the hard part. I wanted to tell you straight away so we could grieve together. So many sad things, that's just one on a long recent list that loops and elongates in the chest, in the diaphragm, in the alveoli. What is it they say? Heartsick or downhearted? I picture a heart lying on the floor of the torso, pulling up the blankets over its head, thinking this pain will go on forever, even though it won't. The heart is watching Lifetime movies and wishing and missing all the good parts of her she has forgotten. The heart is so tired of beating herself up. She wants to stop it still. But also, she wants the blood to return, wants to bring in the thrill and wind of the ride, the fast pull of life driving underneath her, what the heart wants, the heart wants her horses back. Thank you. Um, I'm going to enter section two, which is um, a section that primarily deals with the death of my stepmother. Um, she died on February 21st, 2010. And um, so these poems sort of deal with that time and the recovery time after that. Uh, it was a home death, and my father and my brother and I did most of the work to transition her into the next plane of existence. Um, so let's see. 
I'm going to probably just read two of those poems because it's a hard place for me to stay in for a while. Uh, I should say this starts with a phone call from my mother while I'm in Brooklyn. Relentless. Sun in the cool expressway underpass air and Ma calls, says it's nice out today during her long walk through the vineyard where springs pushed out every tizzy-tongued flower known to the valley's bosom of light. I say, look, we're talking about the weather. She says, you know, it does help you to see the person you're talking to. The difference in a wind-blown winter's walk in January cold and the loose steps of sun on far-off shoulders. Then I say, now we're talking about talking about the weather. It's very meta of us. Yes, she says, we could go on like this forever. And it's been exactly two months since C died. My hands holding her head. Odd, extraordinary February sun gone down on the smooth slope of green grass. And all my father and I had done all that day was talk about two things, the weather and her breathing. The machine body gone harsh in its prolonging and the loud gasping sigh of dying, thick as a hawk's cry, breaking out in the cloudless atmosphere. Some impossibly still moment we stood looking at the long field's pull, and we wanted her to die, for her sake. Wanted the motor of the body to give up and go. How strange the silent longing for death, as if you could make the sun not come up. The world's wheeling and wheeling its seasons, like a cruel continuation of stubborn force. But that's how it happens. Instead, Light escapes from the heart's room, and for a moment, you believe the clock will stop itself. Absence. You see, light escapes from a body at night, and in the morning, despite the oppressive vacancy of her leaving's shadow, light comes up over the mountains, and it is, and it is, and it is. Um, when she was going into hospice care, um, I called in a bunch of my fellow coworkers and who had gone through home deaths and sort of asked for some advice. Um, and they were really helpful. And this poem is for them, but it's also, um, I will say, the end of the poem has something to do with what my little brother said. Um, and it stuck with me, and so I wrote this poem. The Riveter. What I didn't say when she asked me why I knew so much about dying was that for me, it was work. When Dad called to say we had a month, I made a list. I called in my team to my office in a high rise, those rosies of know-how, those that had lost someone loved, those that had done the assembly line of a home death, and said, what's this about not keeping her on TPN? One woman who was still soft with sadness said, it depends on whether she wants to die of heart failure or to drown in her own fluids. 
I nodded and wrote that down like this was a meeting about a client who wasn't happy. What about hospice? I asked. They said they'll help, but your dad and you guys will do most of it. I put a star by that. We had a plan of action. When this happens, we do this. When that happens, we do that. But what I forgot was that it was our plan, not hers, not the one doing the dying. This was a plan for those who still had a next. See, our job was simple, keep on living. Her job was harder, the hardest. Her job, her work, was to let the machine of survival break down, to make the factory fail to know that this war was winless, to know she would single-handedly destroy us all. <laughs> you can see why I can't read too many from that section. Thank you. Um, I'll read a poem to recover. <laughs> um, I had never seen fireflies. When I came to Kentucky, I thought, what are these things? <laughs> oh my god, they're amazing. Um, and so uh, I called them field bling. <laughs> this is a poem for them. Field bling. Nights when it's warm and no one is watching, I walk to the edge of the road and stare at all the fireflies. I squint and pretend they're hallucinations. Bright made-up made waves of the brain. I call them field bling. I call them fancy creepies. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've wanted to die. It makes me feel like taking off my skin suit and seeing how my light flies all on its own, neon and bouncy like a wannabe star. Thank you. Um, this is a poem uh, that I um when I was in I, I, I my parents somehow let me take a one way ticket to Europe when I was seventeen. <laughs> I graduated high school in three years and decided I was done. Um, and so at this point, um, I'm, I think, 17, and I'm, I go to Valencia with uh, my then-boyfriend, and all the women were so beautiful and topless, and I thought, I'm going to do that. That was a mistake. <laughs> this is a poem. <laughs> Oranges and the Ocean. Valencia in the 90s, nowhere were the oranges except one slight sight from the train's blur. I burnt my nipples right off the bat. <laughs> no way you could be as pretty as the girls in Valencia, topless and tanned all over. Pale blue hostile sheets were barely bearable. All night I thought I'd die when the moon came in and I'd wake to the pinching skin. But I didn't die. I went right back the next day, but in a t-shirt. <laughs> and didn't try to be pretty. Just swam like something ordinary, something worthy of the sea.
and laugh about that one. It's a true story. Uh, I'm going to read this poem about uh, when I was a younger poet. Um, I do you notice how I said younger, not young? We're still young. When I was a younger poet, I uh, was in a relationship with an older poet, um, and it was wonderful and exciting. And um, I moved in with him, uh, moved with him to New Mexico. And uh, this is a poem about the moment when I realized that this was maybe a mistake. <laughs> so, yeah. Service. <laughs> Somewhere outside of Albuquerque, I was all fed up with the stories about your ex-girlfriend's guest billboard in New York City. And to make matters worse, I had to pee like a racehorse, or like a girl who had too much to drink way too far from home. You stopped at a friend's body shop to talk about a buddy who was stuck someplace in Mexico. You were talking, pulling strings, and taking pulls off a brown bottle, and no one told me where the restroom was. So I walked back to where the hot rods were displayed like dogs ready for a fight, burying their grills like teeth. I was hungry. The air smelled like hot gasoline and that sweet carnation smell of oil and coolant. A girl pit bull came and circled me as I circled the cars. She sniffed my ankles like I was her kin or on some sort of rescue mission. You were still talking, not a glance in the direction of me and the bitch working our ways around the souped-up Corvettes and the power tools. The pit was glossy, well cared for, the queen of the car shop. And when she widened her hind legs and squatted to pee all over one of the car's dropped canvases, I took it as a challenge. <laughs> that strong yellow stream seemed to be saying, girl, no one's going to tell me when to take a leak, <laughs> when to bow down, when not to bite. So right then, in the dim lights of the strange garage, I lifted my skirt and pissed like the hard bitch I was. <laughs> This is a true story. <laughs> These are poems that, like, you know, we always say to sort of protect ourselves as writers, we say things like the speaker. And um, I just can't do that with this book because it just seems so false. Like, if I'm, well, this is about the speaker's experience, it just doesn't make any, it doesn't work for me in this book. That's probably why when I arrived on my desk in September of last year, I had a full on panic attack. <laughs> I thought, what have I done? <laughs> um, this is a love poem for Lucas. Um, and I should preface it by the fact that we were just leaving upstate New York, and his mother had just said that um, his great-great-grandmother had either, or great-grandmother had either died in childbirth or had been struck by lightning. <laughs> and I was like, that's a really big difference. <laughs> So this poem kind of came out of that. Oh, please, let it be lightning. 
We were crossing the headwaters of the Susquehanna River in our new car we didn't quite have the money for, but it was slick and silver, and we named it after the local strip club next to the car wash, the Spearmint Rhino. And this wasn't long after your mother said she wasn't sure if one of your ancestors died in childbirth or was struck by lightning. There just wasn't anyone left to set the story straight. We started to feel old, and it snowed. The ice and salt and mud on the car made it look like how we felt on the inside. The dog was asleep on my lap. We had seven more hours before our bed in the blue grass would greet us like some southern cousin we forgot we had. Sometimes you have to look around at your life you've made and sort of nod at it, like someone moving their head up and down to a tune they like. New York City seemed years away, and all the radio stations had unfamiliar call letters and talked about God, the one that starts his name with a capital and wants you not to get so naked all the time. <laughs> Sometimes there seems to be a halfway point between where you've been and everywhere else, and we were there. All the trees were dead, and the hills looked flat like in real bad landscape paintings in some nowhere gallery off an interstate, but still, it looked kind of pretty. Not because of the snow, but because you somehow found a decent song on the dial, and there you were with your marvelous mouth, singing full-lunged, driving full speed into the gloomy thunderhead, glittery and blazing and alive. And it didn't matter what was beyond us, or what came before us, or what town we lived in, or where the money came from, or what new night might leave us hungry and reeling. We were simply going forward, riotous and windswept and all too willing to be struck by something shining and mad and so furiously hot it could kill us. I've lost count. Two. <laughs> I feel like it's 11. Um, I'm going to read this poem for my older brother. Um, and I should say, it's, a, it's about race. It also deals with sort of the complication of living in the South. Prickly pear and fisticuffs. My older brother says he doesn't consider himself Latino anymore. And I understand what he means, but I stare at the weird fruit in my hand and wonder what it is to lose a spiny layer. He's explaining how white and lower middle class we grew up and how we don't know anything about any culture except maybe Northern California culture, which means we get stoned more often and frown on superstores. <laughs> I want to do whatever he says. I want to be something entirely without words. I want to be without tongue or temper. Two days ago in Tennessee, someone said, stop it, Ada's Mexican. And I didn't know what they were talking about until one of them said, at least I didn't say wetback. And everyone laughed. Honestly, another drink and I could have hit someone. Started the night's final fight. And I don't care what he says, my brother would have gone down swinging and fought off every redneck whitey in that room. Um, this is a, a poem I began when uh, 
my younger brother moved to Alaska, and I was really worried because I couldn't actually think about how to get there. Um, this also deals with um, race and immigration a little bit. The whale and the waltz inside of it. I don't even know how to get to Alaska or how to talk about race when the original tongue is gone. Imagine a woman at the edge, at the border of the universe, waving without an idea of where to wave into emptiness, into a bliss. I moved to New York City once with cash money I'd saved from being a receptionist for the county and a box of books I'd never read. No one tells you how old you'll be one day, or rather no one can tell you. Generations are forgotten with their real letters. Right now he's trying to explain to me why whales don't get dizzy, something about the caves of the inner ear. But all I see is the spinning, icy black water, enormous rush, mammalian greatness beneath me, and how maybe I could swim to Alaska. I heard about a woman once, maybe she was my mother, who wanted to move to Alaska, but the bears were trouble. They gave her a goat to take to the outhouse, not for protection, but for an offering. It had a little gold bell, the goat, that rang out in the air like a cannon. I still worry, even now, about the goat. Did it know what its job was, ringing on like that? I prefer not to make a sound. Will the idea of race go away if we all stop talking? No, we require the goat. We send people before us, scouts of air, of water, of fire, of earth, to tell us how to live. I want to be the largest animal that ever existed, the one blue mother. I'd save the goat and the bear. Did you know giant whales have a spindle cell, making them capable of great attachment and of great suffering? I want to ride around and gently wave at the colorful human parade, especially at you. But in the end, I want the watery under. Evolution, of course. Don't think about trash the size of Texas. Do you know that whales returned to the water? It went like this, water, land, water, like a waltz. I once had a record of whale sounds, I swear I understood. It didn't matter what worlds they were under, what language, what depth of water divided, that song went on and on. What I mean is, none of this is chaos. Immigration, cross the river, the blood of us, it goes like this, water, land, water, like a waltz. I am in no hurry to stop believing we are supposed to sway like this, that we too are immense and calling out. A read a, a shorter poem about um, when I when I went to um, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts, for a fellowship right after um, NYU graduate school. Everyone kept saying, you know, oh, they could see the whales, and oh, I saw the whales at, today at Race Point and Herring Cove, and I never saw the whales, and I got to the point where I just had to pretend that I had because it was really sad for me. So I just lied about it. <laughs> this is a poem about that. Lies about sea creatures. I lied about the whales. 
fantastical blue water dwellers, big slow moaners of the coastal, I never saw them. Not once that whole frozen year. Sure, I saw the raw white gannets hit the wave so hard it could have been a showy blowhole. But I knew it wasn't. Sometimes you just want something so hard you have to lie about it. So you can hold it in your mouth for a minute. How real taste has a real hunger. Someone once told me gannets, those voracious seabirds of the North Atlantic chill, go blind from the height and speed of their dives. But that too is a lie. Gannets never go blind, and they certainly never die. I'm going to read um, a, a new poem that just came out today, and then I'll close with a poem from the book. So two more poems. I think that's actually right. Um, I'm writing a series of dream poems, and uh, this is a, a, a real dream I had. The She-Beast. We lived in a cabin at the bottom of a ravine where a rivulet overflowed with silvery fish. So many twists it took to descend into the space we'd made. You were cooking something. I was unloading groceries. And the pack of dogs was too ravenous. With horror, I realized I had left the German shepherd muzzled for days. She was dying, starving. I stroked her head, her thick black neck fur, musky and hot, like a bear's coat. I carefully removed the muzzle and massaged the greasy tamped-down grooves it had made when it had cinched her dangerous mouth closed. I rubbed her and rubbed and wept and apologized. But instead of biting or devouring or bolting, she began to do what she'd been desperate for. With a low growl, she began to speak. Okay. Um, and I close with this poem that was written when, you know when everyone tells you like, oh, everything's gonna be okay, and then you have that moment like, but what if it's not? I feel like we're at that moment in our society. So, um, uh, this is an apocalyptic poem. <laughs> it deals with me writing my way out of it, I should say. The Conditional. Say tomorrow doesn't come. Say the moon becomes an icy pit. Say the sweet gum tree is petrified. Say the sun's a foul black tire fire. Say the owl's eyes are pinpricks. Say the raccoon's a hot tar stain. Say the shirt's plastic ditch litter. Say the kitchen's a cow's corpse. Say we never get to see it. Bright future. Stuck like a bum star, never coming close, never dazzling. Say we never meet her, never him. Say we spend our last moments staring at each other, hands knotted together, clutching the dog, watching the sky burn. Say it doesn't matter. Say 
that would be enough. Say, you'd still want this. Us, alive, right here, feeling lucky. Thank you. And she did a great job. Thank you, Ada, for that beautiful reading. And you, if you have a question for Ada, please write out a card and pass it up to an usher. Um, I'd like to start by talking and hearing about what you were like as a child and which childhood books and authors still stick with you. I was a nightmare as a child. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I, I think I was a uh, very an emotional child um, that grew up into a very emotional adult. <laughs> um, I, think, I think some of my favorite stories were um, the Maurice Sendak books. Mm. Yeah, the um, Where the Wild Things Are, mm -hmm. Mickey in the Night Kitchen. Um, and then I had that great album that Carol King did with all of his, so it was, you know, mm. the... A's for animals all around. Yeah, <laughs> those, all those songs, yeah. Um, you mentioned, of course, attending the University of Washington as an undergraduate, and you were a theater major. So how did you come to poetry? Um, yeah, I was a theater major, and, um, and for me, I had actually taken all of the electives. You had to audition for the electives, and so I'd taken all the acting classes by the time I got to my junior year. And so I needed to take more electives. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll try poetry. And I took the beginning poetry class and fell in love with it. Um, and then I took the intermediate poetry class and fell in love with it. And then I took the advanced poetry class and it began to, to make a larger shift in my life. And I realized that on some level, I love theater and I loved acting, but there was a level um, where you were just always speaking someone else's words. And at the time, you know, you was a lot of just dead white males. Um, so you were just speaking a lot of words from men. And I thought it was this real gift to finally find my own chance mm -hmm. to say something. And um, that didn't happen until I got those classes. And it was a great gift. Um, I'm still utterly, utterly grateful to the University of Washington for that. Mm. And I also love my theater degree. Mm. <laughs> Do you remember the first either poem or poet or experience that made you think, yes, I want to do this? There was a poem when I was 15 um, that was actually on a test. And it's still one of my favorite poems. It's a great poem. It's well known. It's um, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Mm -hmm. And, but I experienced it at 15, and I had no idea it was a villanelle. I didn't know anything about forms. But you know, she keeps repeating, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, you know, practice losing farther, losing faster. And I just, I was like, what is this? It was the most amazing thing I'd ever read. And still to mm -hmm. this day, it's a poem that I, try to copy all the time <laughs> and fail miserably. Um, but yeah, no, 15. And it was on a test, and I was mm. like, if all tests are like this, I will take tests. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. So after the UW, you attended NYU, as you mentioned, and you worked with uh, many people, but you also worked with um, Philip Levine and Sharon Olds, among others. Do you have any favorite either anecdotes or lessons learned from those two in particular? Yeah. Um, so Phil Levine, I don't know if those of you who know him um, or knew him, his work was really inspiring and wonderful and very like, you know, working class poems, speaking about Detroit. And um, I always just sort of wanted to be able to, to emulate him in my work. Um, and he was my very first workshop. So I, you know, here I was without an English degree and got into graduate school and Phil Levine was my first teacher. And he was very hard. Um, but I learned what to fight for and one of the things that he was, you know, he was hard on us. And at one point, I was reading a lot of Kenneth Koch, and I brought in a poem that was really long lines, and it had like numbers. It wasn't narrative at all, you know. It was very sort of scattered, and he was kind of looking at it like, "What is this?" And my friend Kazim Ali, who was in the class with me, said, "But Phil." don't you think there's some beautiful lines here? And he goes, yeah, there's some beautiful lines. I just wish you would put them in an effing poem. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say effing, though. He was not censoring himself. <laughs> and, you know, it really kind of wrecked me. But at the same time, I have always remembered that, that even if you're saying the, you know, a lovely lyric sentiment within the middle of a poem, if it's not building the poem then it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and so I think that's always mm -hmm. something that, you know. And then Sharon was, I went from that to, you know, from him to Sharon. Sharon was the absolute opposite, was very like, the first three weeks we did all just positive thoughts <laughs> on each other's work. You know, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, a, it was kind of a good lesson in, in both strength and uh, courage. Hmm. Um, so I have a question about failure. There, I feel like there's a focus in our culture at the moment on the idea of celebrating failure and that failure can be formative if viewed in the right light. And I, I want to ask, what, what is your approach to, to failure? How do, you, how do you define it or work with it? And do you feel like you had a, uh, like a formative failure that sort of propelled you forward in some, in some I hope way? it wasn't tonight, but yeah. <laughs> um, Was it tonight? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think failure is fascinating because I think that's you just kind of that's the entire process of writing mm -hmm. is sort of failure, you know, <laughs> because you're never living up to the reality of what's happening in here and here. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just trying, you're just attempting all the time, so you're never quite getting that song right, you know. Um, but you try and you keep going for it. Um, but I do think uh, when I lived with Trish in Brooklyn, uh, we had a lot of, I got a lot of rejection letters. And it started as like a little file folder on the desk and then it was like, a, you know, larger and then it was like a garbage bag um, of rejection letters. And we used to laugh that we would get rejected twice or I would get rejected twice because we'd come home from the bars and I'd get the rejection letter and I'd be like, oh, really bummed. And then in the morning I would totally forget about it. And then I would see it again and I'd be like, oh. <laughs> so we would be like, double rejection again. <laughs> um, so I was, I was double rejected a lot in my early 20s. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, no, I think that that, I mean, there are still things that I wish that, you know, I could get or could receive mm -hmm. or, I mean, yeah, that's, it's a constant thing that you're telling yourself, am I good at this? Can I still do this? Is this, you know, and then, you, you know, you have to also balance the fact that you have to listen. Marie House says this wonderful thing. Uh, you shouldn't listen when they tell you the bad things, but you also shouldn't listen when they tell you the good things. Mm. Because both of those things can kind of wreck your creative process. Mm. And so I think it still has to be about the attempt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as I mentioned in my introduction, you said in an interview, poetry wants you to live your life and find happiness and breathe. And I think we, as you know, poets or readers of poetry, talk so much about what we want poetry to do or what we think it does. And I love the idea of poetry having its own wants and hopes. And do you think of poetry as an entity or even sort of an animal that's outside of yourself? And if so, does that change your relationship to, to poetry? Yeah, it's funny. I do think that, you know, we, there's, all, there's always articles, like every day there's a new article. It's like, poetry's dead, you know, or they're like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a really, that's a, like, talk about failure. Like you enter a, a field that literally like everyone is telling you is dead all the time. Um, but, but I, so I think that one of the reasons I was saying that poetry mm -hmm. wants these things for you is that one of the things I find so remarkable about poetry is that we're always looking in our culture for a time to breathe, um, a space, and there's not really a lot of art forms that allow for that. But because of the way poetry is built with the line breaks and stanzas, it builds breath right into it. And that to me is such a fascinating thing um, that at a time when we need so much breath, there's an art form that literally is telling you when to breathe mm. and to breathe. Um, so I do think of it as poetry being much larger than myself, mm -hmm. you know, much larger than my work and much larger than the contemporary poets, but the conversation that's been happening since language began, mm -hmm. you know? Um, we have a few questions from the audience here, um, and this one is, what was something that helped you find your own voice and your own way with poetry? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I have always done is I compose out loud almost entirely because the sound is really essential for me. Um, so that when I write one line, I read it out loud, I write the second line, I read those two out loud. I mean, I just, it's a constant thing. And I think that when you do that, you get really much more familiar with your own voice and what it feels off kilter or what is not ringing a true note. So if, if you find yourself sort of searching for those things um, or trying to figure out what your voice is, I, I would definitely recommend reading out loud. Um, the other thing is just to embrace your weirdness. <laughs> it's like the one place you get to do that. Like, like your weird mind is actually what makes your poems awesome. Mm -hmm. Is that they set, it, you know, they set you apart from everywhere, everyone else. Mm -hmm. So, did you always recite your poetry out loud as you were writing it, or was that something that, that you discovered along the way? I always did it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was I thought that's your... how people wrote. Like I, I was like, <laughs> I guess that's how, you know, like I was, I was obsessed with the power, the Bill Moyers, the power of the word mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up and we had them on like the VHS tapes, you know, and um, I love them. And I, but I thought like, of course, Lucille Clifton, right? Like she must just like compose out mm -hmm. loud, like l listen to that. 
you know, Phil Levine, whatever. I just assumed mm -hmm. that everyone kind of, because the sounds were so phenomenal. So I just thought that was a natural way to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's why I can't write in coffee shops because I would be dragged away <laughs> for being <laughs> insane. Um, speaking of practice, I wonder if you are, you know, if you are always writing, if you're a daily writer, or if you are more of an on-off on writer. I could lie and say I was a daily writer, <laughs> but I think that's, I'm trying not to do that about the sea creatures. Um, let's see. I, what I do do is I take notes. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, I think I, I think I have a draft of the poem, a poem I wrote today on the plane. Um, but I take notes all day long. And I, um, I shift around, some, you know, somebody says something. I just met a man last night in Portland who said that he um, had a temp job at UW after school, and it was for the chemistry department. And they didn't really know what to do with him, so they, but the, what they had was they had a, um, a file box of keys that no one knew what doors they opened. <laughs> So literally his job was to go around with keys and see what doors they opened. And I was like, okay, I'm stealing that. <laughs> and he was like, okay. But you know, so like that's a note, like that's yeah. an example of something I would write down and be like, okay, mm -hmm. that, I, that needs to be yes. in a poem, yes. you know? Yeah. He's a fiction writer. He said he didn't want it. So he said it was fair game. That's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, in a, in a poem... Do you feel, are there either words or parts or moments in a poem that feel like they are the real most important parts of a poem? I'm, I'm obsessed with endings. <laughs> I know that. I know that I, um, I think uh, I see a lot of contemporary poets and younger poets maybe um, not making choices for endings. Like they just kind of leave the poem. And I always laugh that when you're talking to students, I'm like, it's literally like you have us in a room. We're right there with you. You're telling us this amazing story. Kind of have a crush on you. We're like, wow. And then you just like walk away in the middle of a sentence. And there's a lot of poems that do that. Um, and I think it's primarily because people are scared to make a choice. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, endings are big. Mm -hmm. um, and I also like a big ending. <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'd have to watch it. I have to watch it because it's also my crutch, you right. know? It's like, you know, I want to be Simone Biles. Like, I just want to, like, stick it, you know? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and sometimes yeah. the poem doesn't have that. Sometimes the poem needs to kind of meander off. And so it's a constant sort of struggle of bowing down to the poem and what my instincts want. Right, yeah. right. Um, you mentioned students and, you know, teaching. And are there... Perhaps this is one kind, but are there kinds of permission, quote unquote, you give to students or even yourself that might seem, you know, a little surprising or a little bit different from what maybe the mainstream culture is telling us about what poems can or should do and how they should do it? Well, one thing that I find sort of fascinating is that um, it, I had this discussion last night at Lewis and Clark, which was that I feel like so many students they sit down to write a poem and they literally are like, okay, what is the worst thing that's ever happened to me? Because I'm going to write about it. Because that, like, that's their, like, that's what a poem should be, you know. And so, I was, we were talking last night. I was like, well, you know, what's really hard is to write about joy. It's really mm -hmm. hard to write about happiness, contentedness. 
You know, I mean, that's, that's a really difficult thing. We don't have language for it. It's harder language. Um, so I think that a lot mm -hmm. of that is like the permission to, to not write the list of sad things um, and to instead go deeper and, and realize that, you know, we are all living in a moment where we both have to be upset and angry and emotional and peaceful and happy and contented in these, all, these, all these moments, a big mess. Um, and so I think like staying true to that as opposed to just always going down the well, you know, but also finding the ladder. Mm -hmm. So permission to get on the ladder. Mm -hmm. um, a question from the audience, and there's two on this card, so you can either answer both or you can pick your favorite question. One is, what's your favorite wine? And the other is, what would be the name of your racehorse? Oh, that's a good one. That is a really good one. Um, and I think you might know these people. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite wine is probably Vulture vineyards in Sonoma. Um, same people who do Stone Edge. Mm. It's amazing. Um, and a racehorse. Oh, that, I mean, that's a hard one. So many, so many good names. Um, I don't know. I think I have to think about that one. Is that like a question that people ask each other at parties in Kentucky? Like, <laughs> what would your racehorse name be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it should be. Maybe you could bring it back. It's not they do, already. but it's also yeah. more like this. Hey, I've got a little bit of this. I've got ten percent of this racehorse. Uh -huh. Do you want to name it? If you give me sixty uh. percent, so it's not more just a that. fun poetry yeah, game. No. <laughs> There's money involved. Uh, hmm. Interesting. <laughs> we don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. So you're now four books into your career, and has I wonder if has um, how you compile, shape, and write a book changed from your first book. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I definitely think that I'm interested in building narrative a little bit more than I think I was in my earlier works. Um, uh, but also, like right now, I'm sort of watching, I have like 30 poems maybe into the new book, and I'm sort of watching them collect and come together. And I'm very much more aware of the reader and the audience and wanting people to hold and read something that matters. So I think that's a, that's a, a huge shift for me, mm -hmm. wanting it to matter. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the, the, the next book. Mm -hmm. um, what, else, what else is next for you? Yeah, it's always, call, it's always hard to like call the next book a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like the, the word processing document. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, I just, I finished a draft of a young adult novel like two weeks ago, um, which I'm excited about. Congratulations. Um, I have no idea if it's any good. I don't really write fiction. I've, I've, I've written one novel and I've written this and I, I think I'm just good at giving myself exercises. <laughs> so I don't know if really like any of these are successful, but I just enjoy writing so mm -hmm. much. Um, so that is something. Um, and then I've, I've just started a book of essays um, that some, some of the essays still exist, um, but it's about um, female friendship. Hmm. Yeah. That's great. Are you a YA reader? Do you have I a favorite am. YA novel? Um, oof. Yeah. Um, far, Far Away. I can't remember the, the name of his, the name of it, but it's a great book. Um, 
And I love John Green, mm-hmm. Finding Alaska. Uh, I actually went down to Alabama where John Green went to school and where Finding Alaska is set and all the kids are obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. It was really exciting mm-hmm. to go to that high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that was... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I speak for all of us when I think, thank you for being here, that you are our new favorite poet in Seattle. So thank you for coming to Seattle and thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Thank you for having me. That was Ada Limon in Seattle Arts and Lectures 2016-17 Poetry Series. Since her reading, Limon's new collection, The Carrying, was released by Milkweed Editions in August of 2018. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle arts and lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season featuring readings by Soma Sharif, Dennis Smith, Ilya Kaminsky, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.